Morning, everybody. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 one more time, verses 31 to 39 this morning. Fantastic, amazing passage of Scripture. Um, while you're turning there, I wanted to mention our upcoming Common Life book. We have a team of uh, seven or eight of us that are on there. Uh, their names are listed in the, in the Common Life book this time. All of us feel this is the one we're most excited about, and I want to present to you what this is. Um, we're going to be handing the, these out at various ministries during the week. We will be making them available next Sunday, but I'm doing this as a wet your whistle, uh, grease the skids, all the various metaphors you can think of to get you to be really buying into this. I want to tell you a little bit about this. This book, which is designed to be daily readings used um, in conjunction with our sermons on Sunday, is one that is focusing on the Passion Week of Jesus. Over the next seven Sundays, starting next week, we will be focusing on one day of Passion Week um, every Sunday. For instance, next Sunday, we're going to be doing the triumphant entry, Sunday before Easter. The next time we'll be looking, the next week we'll be looking at Monday and Tuesday. Those will be the only days that are combined, and then Wednesday, then Thursday. One half of the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is about the Passion Week of Jesus. And so we're going to take every week, we're going to focus on one of the days of Passion Week. And what we're going to do, we'll be preaching in our services about that, and then there will be readings every day. If you notice the title of this book, it is called We Would See Jesus. Uh, if we can go back to that cover, the We Would See Jesus, this is Jesus uh, overlooking the city of Jerusalem uh, as he's lamenting over the city in Passion Week. Um, our focus is really to help us prepare for Easter this year. And we're going to take those weeks, if you've ever done daily Lenten readings, this is similar, although it is done in a, a particular way. But there are five readings every week that are built on that particular Sunday's message, the preceding one, and then that you'll be able to live it out. The readings look like this, and for instance, I have Monday and Tuesday. Um, I did those five readings, and I'll be talking about it in the sermon, but I'll also then be, during the week, talking about some of the events that happened those days. At the beginning of your reading for that week, all those events that happen in the Gospels are, are highlighted so you can know, oh, Monday, Tuesday is the day that he saw the, curse, the, the fig tree and cursed it. It was the day that he cleansed the temple. All those things did happen on Monday, actually, of, of Passion Week. Um, the, the daily readings are there to have you interact with them personally or read them as a couple, however you want to do that. There are also children's activities, one per week. These, are, these particular children activities not only have uh, that you read a passage and ask a couple of questions together designed for kids, there's also some interactive activity you can do as a family um, related to that, making something out of construction paper or doing something special around the house related to the activity. There are also, and for those of us that are more teaching oriented, we're really excited about this, there are also visuals for instance, I have Monday, Tuesday, 
And Monday, Tuesday is Jesus and the disciples starts with them coming over the Mount of Olives, coming down into, that's where the fig tree was that he cursed. He comes down into the temple area. But we have a map there at the beginning of Monday, Tuesday that shows you this is where Jesus would have come into the temple. This is the part of the temple where uh, Jesus cast out the, the money changers. It's a fascinating thing which, which ties into the name of this because on Monday, he cast out the, the money changers, and they were, in the temp- they were in the part of the temple that was for the Gentiles, was where they could come and, and get to know the God of Israel. But that's what, that's what they had turned into a carnival. And so, basically, the religious leaders were keeping anyone outside of Israel from even being able to know Jehovah God. Jesus came in and said, this is to be a, a place of prayer for the nations, he says. And he cast them out strikingly. A few hours later, on Monday, a bunch of Jews, a bunch of Gentiles, it's recorded in John chapter 12, came to the disciples and they said, we would see Jesus. We want to get to know this guy that is trying to make a place for us to know the God of Israel. And we took that title, We Would See Jesus, as the title of this Common Life theme, because that's our goal that we would come to know Christ better as we move towards and then culminate at the end of the seven weeks in our Easter celebration. So there, there, are, there are maps, there are visuals. These are different days. There's other ones as well. You'll see uh, where in Jerusalem most people believe the crucifixion actually took place, where the, the, the road of suffering he would have gone, uh, how he got there, the, the events that took place on Friday, where they were located, um, you can see I'm, I'm excited about it. I really hope you'll use it. I hope you'll, you'll use it as a, a reading devotional guide personally. Use it as a family. Use it with your kids. And let's really, uh, let's really see Jesus in this, uh, this Easter season as we, as we move towards it later in April. Okay, Romans chapter 8 this morning. I'd like to read verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this this amazing passage of Scripture and its presentation of some of the truly life-shaping truths of the gospel. Lord, we come in this room, we come watching online and... Many people undoubtedly are facing some of the very questions and fears that are spoken to in this passage. 
So, Lord, apply truth to our lives as you see our need, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 64 A.D. The city of Rome, the deranged emperor Nero, had chosen to deflect mounting criticism to him as a leader to a scapegoat people, and he went to the group that already was in the eye of many of the people in the city of suspicion. He took to the Christians, and he began one of the most horrific persecutions. Christians were sewn into animal skins and thrown into the arena to be devoured by other animals. Christians were dragged by rope to the backs of bulls and run through the cobblestone streets of Rome. Christians were placed on crucifixes and still alive were covered with pitch and placed in the gardens of Nero. And when he had his garden parties at night, they would be lit aflame to form the backdrop of light to his deranged parties. Whole families of Christians would be placed in the arena and the crazed mob would undoubtedly include people they worked with, people they knew, extended family members cheering on their demise. Seven years before those events were unleashed, the church at Rome received a letter, this letter, the letter to the Romans. Already they knew the growing antagonism towards their faith and towards them as representatives of that faith. They sensed the mounting hostility which would unleash itself soon after. And Paul writes to them a letter to encourage them to stand firm. And there is no part of the letter that offers more hope to those who had fears to those who sensed opposition, to those who had their own personal questions. Then Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, truly one of the great passages of the New Testament, where four life-shaping truths are offered to Christians. Each of these amazing truths speaks to specific fears in our lives. And I'd like to look at those four. Paul puts them in the context of a in the shape of a question, each one. But there are four amazing truths that he gives to us to speak to fears in our lives. First of all, he says to us, God is for us. This speaks to the fear of opposition. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? In verse 31. If God is for us, is contrasted to those against us. He may be for us. He is for us. There may be others against us. Now, what he is not saying is that you won't have opposition. Who can be against us? Well, if you were sitting there in Rome in those days, and as you were reflecting on this this passage in days to come, you would say, who can be against us? How about those dudes arresting the Christians? How about those stuffing them into the animal skins? How about them, for starters, or a deranged emperor who plays his violin at those garden parties while Christians writhe and burn? Yeah, there are people that are against us, they would say. So what is Paul saying? Who can be against you? 
Because we find out in every generation of Christian faith, some more acute than others, some certainly facing hostility, even today, far greater than other contexts, but every Christian in every generation will face opposition. Every Christian in every generation will sense as I seek to live my life in the power of Jesus Christ to the glory of God, there is an unseen world that is against me. We sense that opposition. You may sense that spiritual opposition pursuing your child or children. You may sense it in your spouse, in your extended family, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Wherever you're trying to make some kind of a beachhead for the glory of Christ. So, what does this verse mean when it says, No one can stand, who can stand against you? What it means is simply this you have the great power on your side. He says, If God is for you, you are on the winning side. You have the ultimate power on your side. We have a prayer group that meets here every Wednesday. It's a number of mostly lead pastors, soul pastors from our area that get together, and we pray together every week. It's a treasured time. It's become a very important time in my own life and journey. Recently, we were praying, and one of the guys had shared some real hard things he was, he was facing and opposition he was facing, and one of the brothers that praised us is Terrell, Terrell Person, brother over here at Jacob's Chapel, and a great friend. Um, and Terrell has what we call Terrellisms. They, uh, he, he has the way of putting things to words. And he, <laughs> he prayed this way. He's passionate in his praying. And, he, and I wrote it down later. He says, Lord, we're in a battle. We're in a fight. But we know it's a fixed fight. You're going to win. I literally laughed out loud. <laughs> it's a fixed fight. <laughs> Just, who says that? But, I, but it's true. I mean, we're going to win. It's what Paul's saying. Yeah, there's opposition. Yeah, there's conflict. Yeah, there's, there, there's those seasons where we feel very much the hostility of the enemy pursuing those we love, pursuing us but we are on the winning side. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 124, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away, but God was on their side, and it made all the difference. Paul reminds you, Look, there are going to be times when you feel overwhelmed by darkness. When you feel alone in your face, when faith, when you just feel the longing or so, of some winds. You so want to see your friends, your loved ones, your co-workers moving towards Christ and, and, and Him at work in their lives. But darkness seems to be winning in conflict. There's opposition, there's hostility, things are hard. Paul says, God is for you. Who can stand against you? If I could paraphrase it, I would paraphrase it by this word. The task ahead of you is never greater than the power behind you. 
that God is with us. He is for us. Who can be against us? Years ago, Dawson Trotman, uh, the founder of the Navigators, was speaking to post-Nazism Germany. And he was speaking to pastors, and this particular group of pastors had, had gone from Nazism to being on the eastern side, and actually communism had now come in. And he tells this story, and he writes it. It was actually recorded, his talk. It's called The Need of the Hour. He's just talking about the need of the hour is, is for people of passion to trust God. But here's, he tells the event this way. In 1948 in Europe, I met for three days with a group of 25 German guys. I talked to them every evening for three hours, laying before them the Great Commission and the idea that not only did Germany need to hear the gospel, but the Germans themselves needed to obey the Great Commission by sending out missionaries. Every once in a while, a hand would go up. One of them said, but Mr. Trotman, you don't understand. Some of us right in this room don't even own an Old Testament. We only have a New Testament, but I pointed out when Jesus gave those commands, they didn't even have a New Testament. Later, another spoke up, but Mr. Trotman, we have very good evangelical books in this country like you do. We don't have them like you do in America. I asked, how many books did the disciples have? Scattered through our nine hours together were other protests. In America, you have money. You have automobiles. We have bicycles. In America, you, ha you hear the gospel any day. Every excuse was brought up each time I replied, but the 12 apostles didn't have that either, and Jesus sent them out. Finally, near the end, one fellow who was a little older than the rest and who had an almost bitter expression on his face rose and said, Mr. Trotman, you in America have never had an occupation force in your land. You don't know what it is to have soldiers of another country roaming your streets. Our souls are not our own. I responded by reminding him of the Roman soldiers who occupied Palestine at the time Jesus Christ and his disciples lived. Then it dawned on me that when Christ sent out his men, they were in a situation so bad that there could never be a worse one. No printing presses, no automobiles, no radios or TV, no, no telephones, no church buildings. He left them with nothing except the job to do. But with it, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore. What does a therefore mean? It means I have the power to give you the order, and I have the power to back you to the hilt. Christ has all power, not just in heaven, but also on earth. Not, not part of the power, but all power, which means power over the Romans, power over communists, power over every nation on earth. What do you think the early disciples thought about that? Paul was able to tell the Romans, your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. And he said to the Thessalonians, from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. We don't need anything that God can't supply. Is it knowledge? Is it strength? God can do more through a weakling who is yielded and trusting than he can through a strong man who isn't. Do you have this thought securely in your mind? God, I'll never let the lack of anything persuade me that your work is being hindered. You have an excuse if you want one. You have hundreds of them. But what holds us back is that we don't live and preach the fact that God is God and that he has all power to do it. Paul says it this way, if God is for us, who can be against us? The task ahead of you is never greater than the power behind you. God is for you. 
Secondly, he says, God will look out for you. Verse 32 says it this way, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? This speaks to our fear of inadequacy. Those seasons when we sense our lacks, the things that we don't have in our lives, very aware of our insufficiency in ourselves, he says, God will provide. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not freely with him give you all things? The word spare is used in at least two, the verb spare is used in at least two prominent ways, I think, in our English language. The first is, is when somebody might say, uh, hey, hey, mister, can you, can you spare five bucks? Well, what we mean there is, is can you, do you have enough to share with me? Do you, can you share out of your abundance? That's one way we use the word to spare. Can you spare it? But there's another way we use it, and it's the one that's used here. In that case, it would be like a, a person who has come to a horrible accident scene, and you've seen mangled bodies, and, and you go back to your car, and, and somebody says to you, what did you see? And I say, I, I'm going to spare you the details. I'm going to spare you the terrible visuals that I saw. To spare in this sense means to withhold something horrible. God did not spare Jesus. He let the full weight of the penalty for sin fall upon his son. He poured it out on his own son. He did not keep Jesus from literally bearing hell for others. He poured it out on his own son when he did not spare him even though Jesus was in torment in the garden. He did not spare him, though he cried out in anguish on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time in all eternity where the Father and the Son are, are separated and there is a breach in relationship and Jesus felt the awful horror of the loneliness of separation. He literally bore what hell is, separation from God eternally. He bore that upon the cross. The Father did not spare him from that. He allowed the worst to happen to his son. He did not spare Jesus all that to secure you, to rescue you. And Paul is saying, if he did not spare his son from that, how will he not freely give you everything else you could possibly need? God gave up his most treasured possession for you. Why would he withhold anything of less importance? Eugene Peterson has, has put together what's called a paraphrase. It's not a literal translation of the Bible from the original languages, but it's more of a paraphrase of the English language. But I, I like what he says, and here's what he says in verse 32, our verse. 
If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? It says, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also freely give us all things? This sense of completion, this idea of he'll give everything we need is constantly mentioned in the New Testament and the Old. Here's what Lamentations 3 says. It says, his mercies are new every morning. In 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Every morning, everything that you could for, to speak to, every need is found. And it's guaranteed to be yours because the Father says, if I didn't spare my son, how will I not with him freely give you everything every morning for every need? Freely give you all things you could possibly need or imagine. He gave up his most treasured possession to you. Why would he withhold every, anything of less importance? The third thing he tells us in verses 33 and 34 is God accepts us. Here's what he says. Who will bring any charge against those whom, Jesus, whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This speaks to our fear of condemnation. You may say, well, I, I don't feel condemned. I, mean, I don't know what that even means. I'm not scared of being condemned. Oh, 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 yes, you are. You struggle with the fear of the voice of condemnation every single day, sometimes dozens of times a day. We hear the verdicts every day that we are not worthy, that we are not acceptable, that we are not enough. In that sense, we are condemned. We are, we are declared not measuring up, that we're a less than. We're not a greater than. We hear the verdict all of the time. We don't make the grade. We don't measure up. We hear these verdicts about ourselves multiple times every day. It can happen when you compare your sales report to another salesman in the office. It can happen when you compare your body shape with others you see. It can happen when you compare the attention you get from others with somebody else. When you compare your people skills, your intellectual capacity, your athleticism, your beauty, your car, your house, your kids, your job, your social skills, and a host of other things, we hear the verdicts. Not adequate. In that sense, condemned. To be condemned means that we have not received the grade of acceptability. Where did that come from? Well, I've talked about this often. I've certainly talked about this earlier in this series. So I'm just going to highlight this. That is not something that was created into humanity in the beauty of, of humanity as we were created as God wanted us to be. It came directly, one of the most prominent results of the fall. The first thing that Adam and Eve manifested was hearing the verdicts of unacceptability. Immediately after they sinned in the garden, it said they saw themselves and they were ashamed. 
They've never been ashamed before. They never sense there's something wrong with me. They never sense that I don't measure up. And immediately they're hiding in, in the bushes and covering themselves. And they, they feel shame and embarrassment. They feel unworthy. They feel unacceptable. They hear verdicts. We hear that verdict every day, and you can try to get rid of the verdict of unacceptability by being the top salesman in your office and region, country, world. Won't matter. You'll still find that voice will squeak at you all the time. We try to fill the void of unacceptability in a thousand ways. But ultimately, it is the voice for approval from the creator God that has made us, that we are trying to find, and that void in our lives is only met when God ultimately says to us, you are holy, completely. The verdict is in. You are accepted. You are righteous. You have fulfilled. You have lived life as human life is designed to be lived. And that verdict only comes through the action of somebody else. Jesus Christ not only died the death we should have died, he lived the life we should have lived. And his righteousness, his report card is made available for us to have it be our report card as we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And what happens then is the verdict is you're acceptable. You're not on the line. Now, practically, they say, okay, that's great. I'm glad I got Jesus' report card. That's a nice thing. Great. How does that affect me day by day? The way it affects you day by day is you lean into that. You more and more imbibe the reality of that. You more and more realize the significance of that. And this visual that Paul is presenting to us here is a powerful visual. Paul says in this passage, who's going to condemn you? I mean, God doesn't. Who else matters? Whose other voice is significant? And he quotes from Psalm 110 where it pictures Jesus at the right hand of God. Now, there is no visual of Jesus Christ that is presented in the Old Testament that is mentioned more times than this visual in the New Testament. None. There's all kinds of pictures. I mean, Jesus is a lion. He's a he's the lamb. He's he's the great shepherd. I mean, there's hundreds of pictures of Jesus in his role. But there is no visual that is presented more in the New Testament than this visual of Jesus Christ now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Why? Because it is an incredibly powerful visual. There are at least 20 different New Testament passages that allude to this passage in Psalm 110 in at least 10 different New Testament books. It is a visual that God says, this is the one I want you to get. Have this visual in your mind. Jesus Christ, because of his death and his resurrection, is now seated in a position that he is not recorded to have visualized him before, but as a result of his work, he is now seated at the Father's right hand. Why? What does that visual say to us? Well, there are two things that this visual refers to. One is that Jesus is victorious over his enemies. Psalm 110 says, Be seated at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. A few of the New Testament passages highlight that Jesus is the victorious king. And the proof of that is he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the victorious king and and his enemies are just a footstool before him. He's going to win. The devils are going to be vanquished, the invisible powers, all those associated and turned against the will of God. Christ is going to win. But there is a second visual, a second sense of this visual, and it's the one most prominently used in the New Testament. 
It is not only that Jesus at the Father's right hand is visualizing the fact that he is victorious over his enemies. It is that he is victorious for his friends. He is there making intercession for us. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus every two or three minutes is talking to the Father. Don't forget Mark Willie. Don't forget Mark Willie. He's a good guy. You know, I saved him. I gave him, you know. No, what it means is he is there by his very presence. The nails are in his hands. He is there saying, I'm representative of all of these. Mark Willie stands as one accepted because of my righteousness. Kathy, Bob, Mary, they're here. I'm my presence. He's saying there's no voice that can appear before the judge. There's no one that can come in and get a different verdict. I'm here declaring victory for them. They are accepted in me. They stand in my righteousness. I died the death. They should have died. I lived the life. They should have lived. My presence here is declaring their acceptability. They're not on the line. That is a That is a tonic that we need to take over and over. The visual, you don't have anything to prove. You can lose your job. You can lose your health. You can lose your spouse. You can have every one of your kids turn against you. And you can still say, I'm accepted in Christ. People may not accept me. My employer may not accept my performance. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm leaning into. Because you'll find that God will bring, undoubtedly, will allow you to experience failure in your life in order that you can say, you know what? I was trying so hard to find my acceptance there. I'm accepting Christ. I'm not on the line. I'm going to live this day as a person that whether I get any sales today, whether my family thinks I'm great or they think I'm a dog, whatever happens to, whether I get a girlfriend, I never have a girlfriend. That's not who I am. That's not my identity. I'm not on the line. I've been accepted in Christ. And Jesus is sitting there declaring, this guy, this girl, they're not on the line. There's no verdict that can be brought. What he's saying is this. The case is closed. It's too late. No verdicts can come. Jesus already won the case. The verdict is in. We are accepted in Christ. Number four. God loves us, which speaks to the fear of not being loved. In verses 35 to 39, one of the greatest passages about God's love for his people, there are two things that are highlighted in this passage. First of all, the basis of this love is talked about as he talks about the unbreakable chain of God's love for us. He says in verse 28, Going back, he says, all things work together for good to those who are called according to God's purpose. And I mentioned last time the word purpose actually is talking about predetermined plan. Those that are, that are part of God's predetermined plan, being his children, everything's working together for good. And, and that good, he describes in verse 29, is God is changing them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 35, 37, same thing, all things, the all things again, 
All these things we're more than conquerors in. Why? Not because we're tough or because we always win by faith. He says we're conquering because God is using all of them to fulfill his predetermined plan so we can trust in him. I mean, if we're torn apart by lions, so be it. If we're watching loved ones being torn apart, we can trust that God is at work in our lives because we are part of an unbreakable chain of God's love for us. And the basis of that love, all the way back to verse 29, is he chose us for himself. That love relationship didn't begin with you choosing him. It began with him choosing you. I've been in the ministry for... I don't know how, I actually didn't think about this before I got up here. Long time. I've been walking with Jesus for at least, well, more than 40 years. And I can categorically say that in the darkest moments in my life of the last 40, 45 years, when I have been most overwhelmed with my failures, my inadequacies, my weaknesses, my self-centeredness and ugliness, when I felt most acutely rejected by others, It has been the reality that God chose me, that God wanted me, that God began a plan for me to be his boy that has been that which I have leaned into more than anything else. And he says, this unbreakable chain didn't start with you. It started with God. And you're not going to be able to to break this unbreakable chain of God's plan for your life that he is determined to conform you to the image of Jesus and lead you to glory. And he says, rest in that, because all things are working together for good in verse 28. All things you are then conquerors in, in verse 37. He then tells us the nature of God's love for us in these verses, verse 35 and 39. Verse 35, he says, the nature of this love is that it is the love from Christ or the love of Christ for us. That is so astounding. But secondly, in verse 39, he changes the verbiage and he says it is the love of God in Christ. Now, whenever Jesus is identified in a passage by name and the, 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 the word God is used talking about another person, it doesn't mean that Jesus isn't God, but it's a way of differentiating between God the Father, God, And God the Son, Christ. He could say, God the Father's love is shown in God the Son. But he says, the love of God is shown through Christ and found in Christ. The reason I think this is important is because we often don't look at the love of the members of the Godhead the same. If I ask you to describe Jesus Christ, my guess is most of you would, at least this would be some of the words, gentle, compassionate, kind, um, caring, giving. But if I said to you, would you describe God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, you know, where we know most, I would guess you would have, at least some of you would have a lot of different adjectives. Compassion might not be on the top of the list. Maybe big, powerful, majestic, sovereign, transcendent. It's all true. But they're the same person. They're the same being. The reason that matters is if we are to understand what he means, that God loves us, the way we understand that is to know Christ and to perceive what Christ's love looks like. 
A classic example of this is a, a reading I recently did by Karl Barth. Karl Barth is a German theologian, and he was writing about looking back. He had been in, in Hitlerism, and he was looking back at Adolf Hitler's faith. Adolf Hitler professed to be a Christian. He had been raised with Christian teachings. He actually used Christian teachings as some of his, uh, his twisted teachings to, to defend his treatment of the Jews in, 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 horribly, sadly. And, but he had, a, he had a theology of God. And Swiss theologian Karl Barth put it this way, perhaps you recall how when Hitler used to speak about God, he called him the Almighty. But it is not the Almighty who is God. We cannot understand from the standpoint of a supreme concept of power who God is. And the man who focuses on God only as the Almighty misses God in the most powerful, terrible way. For the Almighty in itself is simply power in itself, which is evil. Now, the Bible does describe God as Almighty. He is Almighty. He's omnipotent. But what Barth is saying is when that is what we see of God, powerful, majestic, we also see aloof, distant, fearsome, awesome. Hitler had such a God. He did not have a God that compelled his heart, that brought him in, in loving submission and repentance. His heart was not drawn to this God. Martin Luther describes himself exactly the same way. He says, even when I was in the monastery teaching the Bible, writing commentaries on the Bible in the early part of his ministry before he actually came to his conversion experience and really saw Romans 1.17, that Jesus Christ was his means of righteousness and, and embraced the gospel, he said prior to that, God was a fearsome God. I didn't love God. I feared God. I thought I was worshiping him. But I was not drawn to him, and quite honestly, he said, I and the other monks, when we prayed, we tended to pray to Mary, or we tended to pray to, to other saints, because we were not drawn to, to enjoy and, and have communion with this God. It is knowing the love of Christ, that he loves his followers as his friends, that he delights in them enjoys them, relaxes with them, shares openly with them, has fun with them, that draws us to a picture of what God's love is like, that we know God's love in Christ, it says. And he says, the more you understand God's love, the more it will transform your life. Brennan Manning says it this way in his book, A Glimpse of Jesus it is the divine compassion that Jesus embodies in human history and in his own compassionate life and death. Before I am asked to show compassion toward my brothers and sisters in their suffering, I am asked to accept the Father's compassion in my own life, to be transformed by it, to become caring and compassionate toward myself in my suffering and hurt, in my own failure and need. The Father's loving graciousness is not in any way conditioned by, by or dependent upon what we are or do. He will be gracious and compassionate no matter what we are or do. He will be gracious and compassionate toward us because that is the kind of Father He is. He will be unfailingly 
loving. Simon Tugwell, in his book, The Beatitudes, Soundings in Christian Traditions, makes a statement. And basically what he's saying is, certainly God comes along in our lives and points out things that are, are holding us back in our enjoyment of Him and, and that are destructive in our lives. But he makes this statement. God never says to you, I want you to be something else without also adding, but I love you as you are. He's saying, I love you as you are. You may never change. I still will love you. I want you to change for you, but I love who you are. Do you know that? I mean, really. You say, well, God loves me. Well, probably nobody in this place, unless you're really in a, in a, have had some hard things with God or quest. I would say 99 people out of 100 in this room, if I asked, does God love you? You'd say, yeah. How about this one? Does God like you? Is God proud of you? Does God delight hanging with you? He does. The more we see him as Jesus was with his guys, doing life, enjoying life, being together, that's God. He says, I want you to know this. Paul says, I want you to get this. I want you to know that God loves you. So much so that you're a part of an eternal plan. But, but man, you need to live it out right now and embrace it. One other quote by Manning, and then I'm going to close. Brenning Manning was, he says, during an extended silent retreat in Tampa, Florida, some years ago, I was reading the scriptures in my room at the Franciscan Retreat Center. The subtle dominion of self-hatred had returned, and I was back on the roller coaster ride of perfectionist depression, neurotic guilt, and emotional instability. Really happy time for him. The despotic power of my idealized self and the nagging litany of I should have, I could have, I ought to have, why didn't I, why did I, had persuaded me that my life and ministry were empowered by vanity, insensitivity, and self-centeredness. At that very moment, Jesus set me free. Praying over the passage of the washing of the feet in John 13, I was suddenly transported in faith into that upper room where I took Jesus' place among the twelve. A servant, Christ, who had a towel, tied a towel around his waist, poured water from a pitcher into a copper basin, and reached out to wash my feet, the dress and duty of a slave. Involuntarily, I pulled my foot back. I couldn't look at him. I'd betrayed the vision, been unfaithful to my dream, and thus unfaithful to his plan for my life. Sensing my dismay, he placed his hand on my knee and said, Brennan, do you know what these years together have meant to me? You were being held even when you didn't believe I was holding you. I love you, my friend. Tears rolled down my cheeks. But Lord, my sins, my repeated failures, my weaknesses, I understand, Brennan. I expected more failure from you than you expected from yourself. He smiled, and you always came back. Nothing pleases me as much as when you trust me, when you allow that my compassion is bigger than your sinfulness. Brennan, Brennan Manning says, I started to cry. I cried so loudly that, that the retreatant in the adjacent room knocked on the door to ask if I was all right. Why? Because he was consumed with the visual that he was loved. That his love was not conditional. There, certainly there are conditions the Lord says in our lives will help us to, to live more 
beautifully in our relationship with him. There are things that are destructive that he would want out of our lives. But he's saying, do you know how fond of you I am? How much I, I enjoy you? How much, in the statement he makes to Brennan Manning, at least in, in Manning's mind, was, do you know what these years of doing life together have meant to me? Can you imagine if that view of God controlled your life? If that God really permeated the way you, you live this week? Well, Paul is saying, man, I want you to know this is him. This is, this is the God who wanted you, who pursued you, who wants to do life with you. I want to close our service this morning. I've mentioned the message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible that Eugene Peterson has written. And I like the way he, he sort of, in his own words, puts the text of, of this passage. And I'd like it to be the last thing we hear this morning. Here it is, verses 31 to 39 of Romans 8. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who, raised to, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us. Because Jesus loves us, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demon, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Lord, we don't know what this week is going to hold. There are things before some of us that will will stun us, will frighten us. So, Lord, we want to lean into this truth. God, help these words in Romans 8 to become the mantra of the way we think and do life, that our lives would be shaped by these life-shaping truths, that you're for us, that you freely give us everything, you who didn't spare your own son for us, that you love us, that you accept us. Lord, may we walk in the truth of these realities this week to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy this Lord.